as we come again before the very Word of God. If you'd like to read with me, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, and just a few books to the left of Psalms. So if you can find Psalms, turn backward, and you'll bump into it. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that you are a faithful God who keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Lord, would you help us to be a faithful people as well? Would your spirit open our ears to hear from your word now that we would hear you, love you, and follow you all of our days? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Nehemiah in chapter 7. If you've opened your Bibles to look at the text and you're ready to read with me, you maybe are getting nervous right now because you see a lot of names and numbers. Boy, won't this be exciting. I almost decided to read just a few of these names and numbers to give us a sample and a sense and then skip the rest. But I just couldn't skip over it. So uh, instead, we are going to read all of this. And I hope you see that there's good reason why we're about to do this. Uh, bear with me. It'll take just a minute or two longer, but we'll survive. And, and I'm guaranteed to stumble over a bunch of these names and well, that's the way it goes. But this is uh, Nehemiah in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. And they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rahamiah, Nahamai, Mordecai, Bilshan, Meshpereth, Bigvi, Nehum, Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephthiah, 
372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, uh, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Adin, 655, the sons of Atur, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kiriath-Jerim, Cherephah, Beroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmash, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of the other Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam, one. Uh, 1,254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Sina, 3,930, the priests, the sons of Jed uh, Jediah, namely of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, uh, the sons of Harim, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel, the sons of Hadova, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiroth, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pesia, the sons of Bezai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nafusheshim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Hahur, the sons of Baslith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sophtai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Ja'ala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Sheftaiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, the uh, Hazabaim, the sons of Ammon, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakoth, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, 
Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to their work, the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 2,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of God. I need a drink, I think. Now, in Nehemiah's history that we've been walking through for now a few, several weeks, there's been one major project, which has been to rebuild the burned wall of Jerusalem. And that project at this point is done. It took 52 days to do it with lots of threats and hardship to prevent it, but it's finally finished. And now that this big project is done, what is Nehemiah going to say about it? Well, here in this chapter, right on the tail end of the finishing of the wall, there's just a very brief summary about how to order the city. There's some gatekeepers and governors. There's a few words about how to guard the wall, you know, when the gate should be open and when they should be closed. But most of the chapter, you just heard, is a very long list of names. How anticlimactic. You know, they worked hard for this wall. They poured their blood, sweat, and tears into this wall. You'd think at this point, now that it's done, they'd want to open up a bottle of champagne, not open up a spreadsheet. And why does Nehemiah do this? What is the point? These lists of names in the Bible are meaningful. I'll give one example just because I have been helped by it. There's a, an old book from the 1970s that gives a biographical account of some Bible translators in Papua New Guinea. 
a couple named Des and Jenny, and they're working on a Bible translation into the language of the Binumarian village. And Des uh, has been working for weeks on translating the Gospel of Matthew, and one day he finishes and shows it to his wife, and he says, we got the last of it. Matthew is done. And Jenny says, wait, what about the first 17 verses? And they had skipped the opening words of Matthew's gospel because it's just a list of names, the generations for Christ, and they were thinking that it wasn't that important. Uh, but Des goes back, uh, gets his helpers around, and they work on translating those opening verses, which word spreads around the village of this. And so when that work is done, Des then is invited into a gathering at a man named Namipi's house because they're going to have a reading of the translation. Now, they've had many readings of Bible translations. So they've done this many times before. But this time, when they gather, the house is packed. Even the center of the room where everyone is squeezed in tight, there's a, a, a tenseness, Des says about it. The, the room is eerily quiet. And the leader there asks Des to come up and to read in their language what he had just translated. And Des puts his head down to the text and begins to read in the Binumarian language the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. And name after name he reads, generation by generation, until he reads the last words of this section. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And with these words, Des is finished, and he looks up. And every eye is on him, most of them eyes wide and round. And finally, one of the uh, native men, Ya'a, speaks, and he says, Why didn't you tell us this before? Why didn't you tell us this before? Nobody bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. It's just real people that have generations. The people then start to talk with each other. Fourteen generations, that's, that's two hands and a foot. I guess that's how they measure. That's, that's long, two hands and a foot, and then 14 generations, three times over. That's six hands and three feet. That's ancestor record is longer than ours. Then the people say, this Jesus is not just white man's magic. Jesus was a real person that walked the land. And Des tells this story because for him, the list of names had seemed boring, skippable, almost meaningless. But for this small tribe of people, this list of names led them to believe in the truth of Jesus. Now, we don't have to assume that for us, 
We all have to be struck by Bibleists in the same way as the Benumarians were. I don't expect, didn't think that as I read this list when I finished and looked up that you all would have giant wide amazed eyes looking at me. But we should at least know that these long lists of names are not filler. They serve a valuable purpose as part of the whole counsel of the word of God. These are words breathed out by God that are meant to make us complete. So in the rest of our time, I want us to ask three questions of this list. The questions are these, what is its purpose? Why is it here? And then how do we carry it? What is its purpose? Why is it here? And then how do we carry it? Let's look at the first of these questions. One, what is its purpose? Not every list of names in the Bible serves the exact same purpose. In fact, if you've been here with us for a while, you maybe remember that we've already bumped into one long list of names already. Back in chapter 3, Nehemiah gave a list of all the workers that helped to rebuild the wall. And just so you can look forward to it, we've got another list of names coming down the pipe. In chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah, we, we get another list of all the residents that come to repopulate Jerusalem. But here in chapter 7, this list is to enroll the genealogy. Did you notice that in the reading? That's the point of it, to enroll the genealogy. So Nehemiah has gathered this big assembly of all the Jews in the area, he, the, the nobles, the officials, you know, all the locals. They're about to have this really big holiday festival, which is very joyful. I guess they are about to pop that cork of champagne. It's joyful, but it's also sorrowful. We'll have to wait to see that in later weeks. But before they get to this festival, first they count heads. And there's a lot of heads to count. The assembly, uh, minus the servants, is 42,360 people. With the servants, it's about 50,000. That's, that's bigger than the population of Hannibal, Palmyra, Monroe City, and Rensselaer combined and doubled. Okay? So, so in, cha in chapter 5, or in chapter 7, verse 5, we hear this. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And then he goes on from there. So Nehemiah then, with all the people, pulls out this big old genealogy book. It's probably a scroll. It probably made a different sound than probably meant, I don't know. But big scroll, rolls it open, and then begins to sort the people by family. Notice the people are not just numbered, they're grouped by their family line and history. Some of them have really big groups of families. The sons of Sena are about 4,000 people. Some are really small groups. Uh, there's the men of the other Nebo, which makes me curious about what happened to the first Nebo. But the men of the other Nebo, they've, they've only got 52. But, but whether it's a, a huge group or a really small group, whatever the size, all the people here are acknowledging their generational roots. That's what's happening. They're looking at their history. Now, we know that generational roots can be abused. 
There's even specific cautions in the New Testament about it a couple of times. Be careful about genealogies that pro- promote speculation, Paul says, and avoid foolish genealogies that are worth- worthless and-, and leads to quarrels. In other words, we don't want to dig into our, our roots just to prove that one family is better than another family. You know, this isn't about like, hey, I'm a Rockefeller, or my family came over on the Mayflower, or I'm related to Abraham Lincoln, that all may be interesting, might be cool, but it does not make me any better than the next person. Here, we get a particular purpose in these genealogy roots that are good. That leads us now to the second question. Why is this genealogy here? Why is it at this spot in the Bible? You know, if he's going to give us a whole list of names and numbers, why doesn't Nehemiah just kind of tuck it at the end? You know, that's how most of us do things like that. Put a little appendix so you can look up the names if you need to. Or there's an almost identical replica of this exact list recorded in Ezra chapter 2. So why doesn't Nehemiah just give a footnote and say, see the scroll of Ezra for a list of names? You'd think that would save a little bit of ink and time. But this is not just being redundant. There's a reason why Nehemiah puts all this ink here at this moment in their history. And the reason for it is because this is not just a record of people. This is a record of survivors. These people are survivors. They come from a history of people and families that have come out of captivity and exile. Generations prior, this capital city of Jerusalem had been broken and burned by Babylon. At that time, many thousands of Jews died by the sword and the few who were left were taken away into exile. And so here in this moment, we now have a gathering of families standing in the very same spot where their grandfathers and grandmothers warred and wept and watched their walls burn And now these families are looking up at this wall that has been newly rebuilt. That's the perfect time to pause for them to regroup and remember where they came from. Because this isn't just about a wall that's been reconstructed. It's about a people who have been restored by the hand of God. You know, these generational roots endured. They did not die. They endured because God had kept them. And he kept them through more than just an exile out of Babylon. If we were to trace their roots even further back, we would see it go through all sorts of suffering and sin. 
These family lines had faced all sorts of things. They, they saw the fall of Israel in, in the destruction of the Assyrians. They saw punishment that came through cycles of rebellion to the Lord. Several of their own Jewish kings were terribly wicked and brutal. There were wars and rumors of wars, seasons of grumbles against God, homelessness in the wilderness, ruthlessness of slavery in Egypt. They went through famines and droughts and family strife where brother tried to fight and kill brother. And if we were to track this all the way back, we would trace this line way back to one little old man and his little old wife, who at the time were childless. And seemingly out of nowhere, God visited them and spoke a promise to them. The Lord said, Abram, I want you to go to the land that I will show you and give to you. And Abram, I'm going to make a great nation from you who will be my people. And Abram, I will bless you. And I will bless all the families of the earth through you. So now here, gathered with Nehemiah, these people standing at the newly finished wall are part of that blessing. A millennia and a half has passed since that promise first made to Abram. But Nehemiah and these surviving remnants of God's people are still standing on the promises of God. There are people who have been burned, but not burned up. A people who have been afflicted, but not crushed a people who have been persecuted but not abandoned, a people who have been struck down but not destroyed. And even though they don't know it yet, from their surviving roots, God is about to spring up a branch who would bear even greater fruit. From them would come one on whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest one with the spirit of wisdom and counsel and might, one with righteousness and faithfulness as his belt, the one called Jesus, who would save his people from their sins, the one who would bring out of exile from being strangers on the earth, bring his people into the kingdom of the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. That's to come. But in this moment, every one of these 50,000 or so people gathered at this wall are just a foreshadowing of that bigger fulfillment. They're a testimony of God's faithfulness from generation to generation to generation now. Our third and final question is, how do we carry this? What does this book of genealogy do to us? I'll mention three things and then we'll be done. How do we carry this? One, this gives us confidence. This gives us confidence. You know, we sometimes hear 
many, maybe too many Christians sinking into fretfulness and anxiety about the state of our country and the state of the world and even the state of the church. And that happens because there's a natural fixation to just look at whatever's in front of us. And when we look at what's in front of us, we see a lot of rough things. We're going to see our own sin, our own suffering, our own sadness. All of that is true. But if that's all we see, it starts to make us despair. When we open up these old books of the genealogies of the Bible, we are reminded that we are not the first nor the only generation to face all of these sorts of things. You know, these returning exiles surely had plenty of reasons to fret their own sin, their own suffering, their own sadness. But God was faithful to keep his people then, and God will be faithful to keep his people now. There's confidence that comes with this. Not only confidence, the second thing we we carry with this is there's a connection, connection here. When some people read the Bible, we just open it up and, and, and we see a series of isolated stories, you know, an account of Joseph or Ruth or Daniel or Paul, you know, and, 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 and if we see it that way, we're going to ignore lists like these because there's no story here. That approach is missing it. In reality, the lists are part of one big story of the Bible that's all connected, of how God continues to be true to his covenant promise and to bring blessing to the world that he made. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises, and this is part of that. We see here that Jesus came to rescue his people, not just me. Not just you, but a whole book full of people who have put faith in him, who are all connected as one family with God as our faithful father. There is connection here. And lastly, there is a counting, a counting It's hard to miss that every head of the people enrolled in the genealogy got counted. Nehemiah actually does the math. He calculates the number of the people assembled, uh, 49,697. And each of those numbers is a person. Now, some people are going to say, well, I don't want to be just a number. I don't want to be just a faceless, nameless tally mark, and you're not. No one is ever just a number to God. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows all your days. He knows the number of current hairs on your head. You are not just a number, but you are a number. And that's good. To be a number means you are counted as part of something bigger than you. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're like one of the grains of sand that makes up 
a whole seashore. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're like one of the stars in the sky that makes up the whole Milky Way. You are one of the sons and daughters of God that make up the whole multitude of a mighty chorus from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And when the book of life is opened on the last day, every name that is counted there joins together in praise to God for his everlasting salvation. Pray with me. Lord, would you help us to find good rest here that we would be happy, content to be counted amongst the numbers who praise you? Would you give us a strong sense of connection and confidence in your faithfulness? You are the forever true and good and glorious God. Thank you for your mercy throughout the ages. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.